Hey everyone, we hope you're having a great week. My name is Eric Johnson, and along with my wife Candace, we are the lead pastors of Studio. We are based in Greenville, South Carolina, and we just want to take a moment and say hello and say thanks for listening to this podcast. So with that, let's get right to it. Well, I'm excited about today. If you were not here last week, uh, I don't want to shame you at all. I just want to say this. I would encourage you to listen to the podcast from last week because we're going to segue straight into today because of the foundation we built on last week. I'll give you a quick review, and this is not a this is not a cliff notes to last week. Please go listen to last week. Um, it's important. I feel like it's one of the crucial talks that we have in regard to building a culture here and to building a house here. And the title of last week's talk was A Home for Humanity. A Home for Humanity. And we talked about this idea that Starbucks actually built their entire business model, and they were pretty large in the 90s and early 2000s, and obviously a lot more coffee had come to the scene. But Starbucks built their entire business model on this theory called third place theory. And the idea was based around this concept that everyone had the first place, everyone had the second place, which is your home and then your work. But that third place is outside of your home and work. It's where you interact with other people in a different setting. It's kind of that other space that you spend your time in. For some of you, it could be the church. It could be a gym. It could be a coffee shop. It could be pickleball. It could be a golf course. And if you live in Greenville, it could be Swamp Rabbit Market. So that third place, and Starbucks' entire goal was for their coffee shop to become third place for as many humans as possible across the world. And to be honest, they were highly successful in becoming that place for everyone, a lot of people in the world. But working with that theory, begin to dive into it a little bit, and I begin to realize something that even in your homework and the third place in your life, there's a common denominator in all three places, and that's you, and that's me. We are always in our home, we are always in our work, or we are always in that third place. You can't get away from you no matter how hard you try. You show up wherever you go. And this whole idea we're working with, and we call that, just for context, we call that the zero place. We call that the zero place, that you are the beginning. You are the zero place because from zero, the entire numeric system works. And zero is what makes the numeric system explode with life and meaning. So you, wherever you go in life, you're bringing you to that contact, that environment. If you think you do nothing in every environment you're in, you are greatly mistaken. Every environment that you step into, you show up. And then we begin to look at the life of Jesus, that everywhere Jesus went, he became a home for humanity. He became a home for broken people. He became a home for religious people. He became a home for humanity. So we spent a lot of time last week talking about that, extracting and expounding and going deeper into that. And so I would encourage you after today, go back and listen to last week if you missed it. Today, we're going to focus more on the zero place. We're going to talk about you and me. In this room alone, there are endless variations of zero place. There are hundreds of variations just in this room alone. Each of us have different background, different upbringing, different experiences. We are all in our own journey of life and faith. Everyone in this room has a different variation of it. We may be aiming at the same place, but our starting place is very different than the person you're sitting next to. 
different even than a sibling or even a twin, if you happen to have a twin. Each of us have a different variation of our own zero place. So this whole idea of understanding we're in a different journey, a different variation of life and faith. Some of you are brand new to the Christian faith. Some of you may have been a part of the Christian faith for as long as you can remember. It's all you know. You remember the old Sunday school songs. You remember communion leftovers was the best thing about church as a kid. I mean, you, you've been in church a while. You've been following Jesus for a while to some degree. And others of you, maybe you were part of another religion, another type of faith. And maybe over time you realize that Jesus is the answer. And some of you, frankly, might be in a different type of faith right now, and you're just kind of checking things out. The point is this. In this space alone, there are hundreds of variations of this zero place. And what I want to talk about today really is this idea that we have to own and understand our own zero place. We have to take ownership of it. We have to recognize it because everywhere we go in life, we are either affecting the environment intentionally or unintentionally, but we are shaping, we are forming every environment. It's a powerful moment when you take stock of what's happening inside you. It's amazing how many people sometimes I interact with that don't take stock of what's going on in their own soul when they don't actually take ownership or even aware of what's going on in the very core and the essence of who they are as a person. It's a beautiful moment when I run into someone or myself have the realization of what's going on at the very core, at the very essence of what's going on inside me. And when that happens, your life, your environment will be an expression of what's going on deep inside you. And some of us are very disconnected from our life that's happening around us, the spaces and places we're creating, and we're unaware, or we're just not aware of the fact that it's because of what's going on at our core. You see, for Jesus' followers, we put our faith in the confession of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's where we put our faith in that. The question we must look at is what is our motivation for being holy? The question I want you to think about right now is what is your motivation to being someone that doesn't sin? What drives you to be someone that's pure and holy? It's the question for every Jesus follower has to wrestle with this. This isn't a one-time wrestle. This is actually a daily reality. Why am I pursuing a moral lifestyle? Why am I pursuing being someone that is holy in every area of my life? Why am I pursuing a life that has no sin in it? This is the question we must wrestle. We must be okay with doing this. What's driving you to be a good person? What's motivating you to be someone that's good Jesus would call that a righteous person. So today, I want you to just take a moment. It's like, what's driving me? What's, what's making me want to be a righteous person? Is this something that I was told you just have to? Do I even know why I want to be a good person? Do I even know why I want to be righteous without sin? At least attempt to be without sin? 
This is an important question that will help you to understand what's driving you, what's causing you. And for those of you that are following Jesus, it'll help you to understand why you are in relationship with Jesus. What I've noticed in my own life, at some point in my own journey with, with the grace of God, I tend to get to a place where I feel like I need to earn it, where I need to prove it, where I need to prove that I deserve grace. There are a moment, I'm just going to be honest with you, it's probably more often than I want to actually admit up front, but I'll just say this, it's frequent, where I feel like I need to earn His love, His grace, His approval that my action, my decisions are actually coming from that place. I'm doing these things because I want to earn it. I want to be able to say, I did this. And Paul says in scripture, he says, we, some of you want to boast about it. So I have to be honest with you, there are moments in my life where that's a real struggle. I feel powerless and so I'm like, well, I might as well just try to earn this. I might earn his approval, his grace. And so because we think this way, all of a sudden we begin to live a life that we, if, if I do these things and you add them up, it equals grace. It equals his love. It equals his approval. It equals the father saying, you're a good son or you're a good daughter. So let's ask the question, what motivates us to be a holy person, to be someone that's righteous? What motivates us to follow God? This was somewhere between 15, 20 years ago. I was reading this passage in Matthew. It's actually at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. There's this spot in there where Jesus is talking about prayer. And it's actually very, it's, it's complicated, but it's actually quite simple. It's multi-layered and it's got lots of texture. But there's one line Jesus says in there. He said, don't pray for the things that you need, for the Father already knows them. And it's just, just this peculiar little statement in the middle of a conversation he's having with his disciples. And I remember reading that one night. It was 11:16 p.m. I just happened to look at the clock, and I remember going, man, that's really, that verse just hitting me differently. Don't pray for the things that you need because he already knows what you need. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what I'm going to do? For the next two weeks, I'm not going to ask God for anything, nothing, not even a parking spot at the front. Not even for financial provision, like nothing. I'm going to not ask him for anything. Within about three or four days, I had nothing to say to God. It was a really terrifying moment because I realized I have nothing to talk to God about. Which made me realize oh, my entire relationship, my prayer life, was based on me asking something from him. It was actually quite sad. It was this moment of like, so how's it going up there? Because part of me like, God, I, no, I told myself I wouldn't do this for two weeks. And I found myself just trying to have a conversation with God. And it was quiet. He was all good. Anything else you want to add to that, God? How's your eternity been? It's long. It's long. I, I bet. I bet. I mean, there was nothing to say. And then all of a sudden, this really weird thing happened. Is I started getting free coffee everywhere. Everywhere. I couldn't buy coffee. For like the next two weeks, every drive-through I went through, someone would pay for it, whether it was the car in front of me 
or the person inside would say, I got this one tonight. I'm like, this is cool. Well, the couple weeks turned into a month. I would go into a shop to buy a bag of beans and the person behind the counter would say, hey, what's your favorite roast? And I say, well, it's this one. I said, don't, I'll bring it to your office tomorrow. I'm like, are you sure? Oh yeah, I got it covered. I'm like, that's awesome. Sure enough, the next morning, I got a bag of coffee on my desk. It got to the point where I had two people at two different coffee shops. They called me, that my, they were Eric's suppliers. <laughs> they supplied me a wonderful thing called coffee. And they would text me every seven days or so and say, hey, are you running low on coffee? And I said, I am. Okay, great, we'll bring you some tomorrow. And so I would get like two pounds every like one to two weeks. I started giving it away. I could not buy coffee. There were moments I would order coffee, i get my card out to swipe, and someone behind me would swipe before I got a chance to swipe my card. This went on for like two or three months. And about three or four months, something happened in my heart, in my soul. I started getting angry. I was like, whoa, 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 no, I can pay for this. I spent three months receiving it for free. But about three or four months, I started getting angry. I started to stop buying my coffee. And I would start like scolding people in a very gentle but serious, like, please, stop paying for my coffee. They said, no, we're paying for it. No, don't. And I would get in these little mini arguments. I found myself so frustrated. Now, you might laugh at that, but it was too much. It was too much free coffee. And all of a sudden, the Lord cornered me. He said, Eric, you only receive grace according to what you need. Whenever you think you're in debt or in lack, you have no problem receiving from me. But the moment you've reached the break-even point, spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically, you then switch gears and you begin to earn it. You begin to pay for it on your own. And I'm teaching you something. You need to never say no to gifts that I give you. It broke me. Now, now Paul talked about this. In the worst seasons, you learn the most. And he also said, in the best seasons, you learn the most. And this was that moment. In a season of incredible blessing, he was stripping a mindset off of me that I had to earn grace at some point. That I actually had to switch out of that. So for 18 months, that three or four months turned into a year and a half. I never paid for coffee at all. For a year and a half. It got to the point I go to a coffee shop and I would order and I would stand there for a second because I knew someone would pay for it. It wasn't like awkward, like, oh, uh, no one paid. It was like, I'll take this and sure enough, someone said, I'll take care of it. Someone, it was just so often. I got so used to it. And I got to the point beginning to realize my understanding of its grace is only based on what I need or what I'm in debt or what I feel like I'm in lack. And the Lord is saying, listen, my grace is meant to bring you into a realm of abundance, to experience me mentally, emotionally, and psychologically, and spiritually. There's a passage I want you to turn to. If you have your Bible or your apps, I want you to go to Luke chapter 15. And, and as you're turning there, there's an old saying that says, what got you here is what keeps you here. And for some of us, I wonder if, if fear of hell is what led you to Jesus. Someone told you, if you don't give your life to Jesus, 
you're going to hell. Is that true? It is, actually. It's in the Bible. It's scriptural. But if what got you there is fear, what keeps you there is fear. And if you're not constantly being made fearful, then you, they, then you will get out of that relationship of what actually got you there. If pain is what got you into relationship with Jesus, if you were in a place of deep pain and loss, and that was your catalyst, that was your moment where you came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I give you my life, I give you my soul, I give you my entire being. If pain is what brought you to Jesus, then you will constantly need pain to keep you in that relationship. Unless, unless you make a transition from pain, fear, and loss into what the Greeks called agape love. But if you don't make that transition over to this realm of agape love and grace, if you don't make that transition, you will always need someone to tell you you're going to hell to stay in relationship with Jesus. You will always need pain in your life. You will always need some crisis. In fact, some of us create pain because it makes us feel like we can go to Jesus. Let me try this side. Some of us create chaos in our life because it's the only medium, it's the only expression, it's the only frequency that we understand Jesus. It's through chaos and pain. You're like, I don't know Jesus outside of this frequency, so we just create more frequency of pain and chaos. And like, how come my life is filled with endless conflict? It's possible because you're the same common denominator in all of those situations. What's going on in you will create the spaces and places around you. In Luke 15, are you guys still with me? In Luke 15, there's this story. We visited this story earlier this year, but we're going to take a totally different angle on it. And I need to go rather quickly because time is getting short. But Luke 15, let's start in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. In this culture, let's pause right here, in this culture, when you ate a meal with someone, it was your way of saying, I accept you. So Jesus did eating meals with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders looked at him and Jesus is accepting them. This is a huge cultural statement here. Let's jump down to verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Let's stop right here. This entire passage we're reading today is based off a statement of the Pharisees looking at Jesus and he's eating a meal with tax collectors and sinners. Essentially, he wasn't eating food with them. The entire conversation, and if you read the whole chapter, Jesus talked about lost sheep, a lost coin, and now he's talking about a lost son, which in the end is two lost sons. And the first son Jesus introduces, now whenever Jesus used a parable, it's not a true story. It's not like it happened and he's retelling the story. He's making up a story to drive home a point. 
So he is talking to people that were accusing him for accepting sinners and tax collectors. And he said, oh, let me tell you a story. There was this father, he had two sons, and the younger one wanted his inheritance early, which in the Middle Eastern culture, especially in first century, when you asked for your inheritance, it was saying, I wish you were dead. But in this case, for the father to actually give his inheritance would actually counter culture. But Jesus said, the father said, okay, I'll give you my stuff, and gives his younger son his inheritance. And so the younger son goes off between the next few verses, they begin to tell us the younger son goes off into a far country and he squanders everything. The word prodigal son is what this parable is called. The word prodigal means to spend everything, to everything is given, or not given, but spent in every way. And so the story goes with the, man, the young, young son spends everything. He ends up in a pig pen. And he said to himself this, we're gonna pick up in verse 11, 17, sorry. He came to his sense and said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So at the end of his road, He's in great lack, in great need, and in great debt, and incredibly hungry. He thinks to himself, my dad has food. I need that. So this is what I'm going to do. And he conspires to go, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to repent so I can get something from him. In this parable, if you're taking notes, write this down. The younger brother represents self-destructive behavior. The younger brother represents, I want to choose my own path of self-discovery. And the younger brother is the type of person that determines, I get to determine what's right and what's wrong. Now let's go to verse 25 of the same chapter. We're going to meet the second brother in this story. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Last verse, verse 30. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you killed the fattened calf for him. So the older brother is angry that his younger brother spent his inheritance, wasted living, and comes home and he's angry that his dad throws a party for him. If you're taking notes, write this down. The older brother is a moral conformist. Elder brothers obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get himself, to get God himself. Tim Keller says this, careful obedience to God's law may serve as the strategy for rebelling against God. Last verse, verse 31, my son, the father said, you were always with me and everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
Remember, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day because they were mocking him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus crafted this amazing parable to let them know you're the older brother. You're not creating a home for humanity. You're only creating a home for people that do good things to get God, to get things from God. And one of the great challenges we have as followers of Jesus is our holiness becomes our moral high ground that we beat on the heads of people. This is one of the great challenges in our faith is this right here is we separate holiness from agape love. But we also learn that both brothers were actually in sin. Both brothers are actually in the wrong in this story. The younger brother is easy, like he screwed up. I mean, he spent his money. They said he would prostitute. He gambled. He wasted his money. We're like, man, that guy screwed up. He's in so much sin. But we often don't recognize if the older brother was in sin as well. His faithfulness to God had nothing to do with his father, had everything to do with what his father had. So he chose to not break any rule, not because of God himself, but because of what God had. The question I want to ask you today, are you choosing to be holy because you want God to give you something, or are you choosing to be holy because of God himself? Are you choosing to live a lifestyle, not choosing to live a lifestyle of sin because you want God to bless you? Or are you choosing not to live a lifestyle of sin because of agape love? It's a hard question for us to ask. Some of it's like, well, that's all I've been told. Don't do these things because it's instructed. The challenge is those laws, those rules were meant to bring you to the Father himself. And so if we live our life being moral conformists, I do what I do to get what God has, all of a sudden we create a culture that you better abide by our morals or you're not allowed. Cut them off. So we create a home for half of humanity but not for the other half of humanity. This is incredibly challenging for us. Richard Rohr says this, Jesus never appeared to be upset with sinners. He is upset with people that they do not think they are sinners. Salvation is not sin perfectly avoided. This is your first time I apologize for the intensity of this. I actually don't. I just want you to know we're actually building something here. We're building something here where we want a home for humanity. We want room for older brothers and we want room for younger brothers. We want room for people that are on their own choice of their path of self-discovery. And we want room for people that think by doing good things they get more of God. We need room for both. And that's the beauty of this parable is the Father loves them both. A few more minutes. One of the reasons why we struggle with bad things happen to good people. Have you ever, ever asked that question before? 
Why do bad things happen to good people? It doesn't make sense. This person had done nothing wrong and something bad happened to him and we wrestle with it. It's an existential like, oh my gosh, how is that even possible? What's the point? Some of us ask, like, man, I'm trying to be good and bad things happen, but this person done nothing wrong and bad things happen because the logic is, if you do everything right, you get blessed. And when you have that logic, you look at someone that done everything right and something bad happens. And then we question God. You see, Jesus is not a set of beliefs. He's a relationship. Man, I wish I had 30 more minutes just to continue to drive this home. Because some of you, this is getting through your hearts, getting through your head. It's actually touching a part of your soul that you didn't know was there. So why are we in relationship with Jesus? What's motivating us? Why are we choosing to live a holy lifestyle? Why are we choosing not to participate in the options and the temptations that are available at any push of a button? Why are we choosing that? Is it because we want God to just bless us or is it because himself we want? We want to be drawn into his gaze. Now, if you find yourself more like an older brother today, guess what? You have the same grace available to you as the father gave to the younger brother. All it takes is repentance. All it takes is, man, I have been living a life of purity because I just wanted you to give me something. And if that's you, it's okay. But you have to repent from that. You have to make a heart change. And others of you in this space, maybe you're the younger brother, you're like, screw it all. I'm doing my own discovery of life. I'm going to figure this out all on my own. And, and guess what? You've reached the end of your road. You've spent everything. And now you're thinking, if I just come to church, Jesus will accept me. It's not true. So depending on where you fit in those spaces today, I want you to know this. His grace is not meant to just get you out of debt. It's not meant to just get you out of a place of great need and loss. And the Bible is more stark about that. It's not just meant to get you out of being dead. It's actually meant to make you more alive than you've ever been in your life. It's because you come face to face with the one that breathes life into everything in existence. You come face to face with the one that explains why you exist. You come face to face with the one that had the answer to every existential variation possible because you come face to face with the one that gives you meaning, gives you purpose, because you experience the agape love of the Father. Last question. When someone else sins, what is our internal response? Are we proud of our moral high ground and accomplishments? Or do we long to see them experience agape love that brings healing and wholeness? Studio, I just want you to know something. The spaces that we create in our life, we are the common denominator. And this reality of your understanding of the grace of God creates those spaces. I've noticed people that are hard on themselves are hard on everyone else. And I noticed the people that are easy on themselves 
have a lot more grace for more people. So this reality of what's going on inside you, this construct of your understanding of unconditional love and agape love creates the world that you live in and it creates spaces and places for humanity to step into. And I want to be known as someone that ate meals with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And I want to be known as someone that ate meals with tax collectors and sinners. Because I want to be a home for humanity. I want to be a home. I want people to experience the beauty and the grace of Jesus Christ by simply interacting with me. That is my ultimate goal. It's because I want to be someone that has been encountered by the love of God in such a way that touched every cell of my being that I become a home for humanity. And my heart's cry is that each of you would do the same. Thanks for listening. And we hope this talk benefits you in every way possible. For more information about Studio, you can go to studiogreenville.com or go to Instagram and look for studio.greenville. We would also love it if you would leave a review and hit those five stars. Other than that, have a great week and we'll see you soon.